0: Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Liz Dubois. She is a soul-centered executive coach. How are you doing today, Liz?
1: I'm really good. I'm so grateful to be here.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and share a bit about your story and your journey with us. I appreciate you taking the time and I'm very happy to be able to sit down and chat with you and share about your story and your journey with the Empowerography community. So thank you. I appreciate you.
1: My pleasure.
0: So, Liz, as I mentioned, you are a soul-centered executive coach. You hold a PhD in conflict resolution. You have a master's in sociology. You are a certified divorce coach, a trauma recovery coach, and last but certainly not least, your mother. That is one hell of a resume. How do you find time for all of these things, and how do you prioritize your time?
1: I mean, I I didn't do them all concurrently, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my dad used to say, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So my resume has been very one bite at a time. There have been times when I was juggling way too much. I wrote my dissertation from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. while my baby slept in, in a house that I had recently renovated that I general contracted the renovation. And I think about periods in my life like that and just kind of look back and get exhausted all over again, (laughs) just like retrospectively. Yeah. No, I I live a pretty easy life. I'm an entrepreneur. I work about 25 hours a week with people I love. I am up until very recently lived on a boat on an island. And, um, you know, I prioritize joy right now.
0: There you go. I love that. Prioritize joy. That's that's a great motto, actually. So what were you doing for a career before you decided to make the leap into entrepreneurship? And what inspired that transition?
1: The economic crash of 2008 inspired that transition right after undergrad. I went and got a waitressing job, like so many of us do right after undergrad. And one of the people that came in to eat lunch had a business card with her that was a local radio station. And I was really done waitressing. And I was just like, this woman is not leaving without me having networked. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I brought out the dessert tray to show her and her colleagues what they could have for dessert Mm. and sold the shit out of that cheesecake. (laughs) (laughs) And at the end, she handed me her business card and said, uh, come in and interview for a sales position with me. And uh, I went in the next day and she hired me. And I, through that, got into the world of marketing and advertising, selling radio ads. And when my my now ex-husband, then boyfriend, went to law school in Miami, I followed him down there and got a job in advertising at a magazine. And three weeks later, the economy crashed. So I'd gone from making you know more more money than any twenty four year old really should, yeah to, to being unemployed in the span of about five weeks, and <laughs> holy
0: um, shit
1: you know, and the neighborhood we lived in it, we were in the financial district in Miami, and there were millionaires jumping off their balconies, you know the economy down there yeah. really, really took a hit. But I knew I wanted to leave advertising and go into the nonprofit sector. My kind of thought process was if I could get people to buy advertising, I could get people to donate money. Like I could get people to buy into the idea that it was important to donate to important causes. Right. When I moved down there. The first email I sent was to, I just Googled women's issue lobbyist and I I asked the guy to lunch and he he bought lunch and brought an assistant with him and they got me networked up with a bunch of different people that do women's causes. And so I got laid off like two o'clock on a Friday and by five o'clock I had a consultancy lined up. (laughs) Holy one shit. of those groups. And, and from there just kind of took off. I got one consultancy and then I got another, i turns out I'm a very good fundraiser. I've raised well over a million dollars in my time. Amazing. In and so I just, just started consulting and like I, I was 24 and it just made sense to me that I only did the things that I was really good at.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: you know, I didn't have a bunch of other stuff that bosses needed me to do. I I just did but only. Did you? The- <laughs> yeah, you know, and and now now I call that the, you know as most coaches do, right? My, I was in my zone of genius. And, yeah. Yeah. In grad school, I started a nonprofit, and then when got recruited and rebooted a nonprofit in Baltimore. But when I was recently talking to my uncle, who's a, a big mentor of mine and a serial entrepreneur. And he said, you know, there's been seasons in my life where it made sense to be an employee when his kids were little. And I kind of sat down and I did a lot of soul searching and talked to a lot of my coaches and my ex-husband, who's very supportive of my career. And my friends were just like, you would crumble at a job. <laughs> it was like the last, <laughs> the last time I had a real job, you know, like when I had a, a quote unquote, like a real boss, I was
0: 23.
1: Holy <laughs> shit. I'm 38, you know, and my ex-husband and I were talking about it. Cause obviously, you know, our kid is his, you know, well being is impacted by his parents and his dad's an entrepreneur. Yeah. And my ex was just like, you're a boss. like, like, so I, you know, I got into entrepreneurship out of necessity and and have stayed because it's the only way I want to live.
0: Yeah. So what led you into the world of becoming an executive coach? And how long have you been a coach?
1: I've been a coach for about three years. I'd been a mentor for a long time before that. Mm -hmm. And the way that I got formally into coaching was I, I went through a divorce and started to really feel a calling towards doing something with that experience. And I found out that divorce coaching was a thing. And I had a, a close friend who's an attorney. She was not my attorney, but I called her my emotional support attorney. And <laughs> she served as my executive coach. No, that's lying. She served as my divorce coach. And I ended up going and working for her firm and getting a certification Um my mom kind of, I don't even, I don't think she was joking. Uh, she was like, you got a master's, you got a PhD, and now you got to get, get a certification. <laughs> um, you know, and there's there's plenty of coaches without certification. So I don't want to imply that that's the only way to, right. to walk into the world. I think experience Trump's certification. For sure. Years.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, So people listening to this, if you've got coaches out there pitching you and they're saying they've got blah, blah, blah certifications, like, please go talk to their former clients and make sure that across the board, go talk to former clients. It's a big investment to work with a coach and certification isn't the only path to make sure that you're a good one. But for for me, I went and got one because I was working within a law firm and (laughs) what happened was I had three different clients who needed to get jobs because they were, you know, stay at home moms and now going into the, into the working world, but they needed yeah. possible jobs. And they all went into multi-level marketing, which is a really good way to stay broke and do a lot of work. And I have so much hate for multi-level marketing, <laughs> so much hate. And so with each of these three women, I was coaching them on how to make more money in these situations and, and how to leave MLMs and start their own companies. And by the end of the third one, I was like, you know, I really have a knack for this Mm -hmm. and I like it more than divorce coaching. And so I was helping women make money and helping them find freedom from oppressive structures, which I think MLMs are. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I hired my first executive coach, which I tell the story, it was $10,000 for one month to work with her. But in my gut... I knew this was who I was supposed to work with. I knew this was the guide for the next part of my journey. And I was still divorce coaching and realizing that I had more of a passion for entrepreneurship coaching, which I've been an entrepreneur for since I was 24 and just felt really like me. And I had this coach kind of teach me how to take it to the next level. And that was in March of 2020. My Mm. law firm needed more from me than I could give in the midst of parenting a child, you know, at home 27 instead of in school. And the law firm just needed more than I could give. And so similar to when I, you know, the economy crashed and I went into entrepreneurship full time out of necessity, you know, the, the world crashed, you know, and, and I needed a better solution that didn't involve being a traditional, you know, a traditional employee. My son and I lived on a boat and he fell off the dock oh, and i it was i was right there i was right there you know he yeah. was in the water for maybe 2 seconds yeah. you know by the time i pulled him out he'd been in the water for maybe 10
0: yeah. and
1: but i was just like if i had not been right there if i had been on a zoom call and not heard a splash yeah. i would have never known that my kid was under the boat that's it and i quit the next day i quit the law firm i was like i can't have my time and my attention divided in this way. And I love you all, but I gotta go. And I started up my full-time coaching practice the next day.
0: Holy shit. (laughs)
1: So and and for those of you that are scared to make the jump, you know, most businesses fail in the first year. Yeah. You know, I made ninety thousand dollars in my first year. You know, I've made a very comfortable living in this business. And I want anyone listening to this who's like, oh, I don't know, entrepreneurship. There are absolutely ways to monetize your expertise that involve making a comfortable living.
0: Yeah, for sure. It is scary making that jump, but I think that if you are willing to put in the work, you're willing to do the work, anything is possible. You can do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of it comes down to boundaries too. Like at yeah. the beginning, you say yes to everybody. And then you learn very quickly that they're energy vampires that will just <laughs> suck up everything. I love
0: that term, energy vampires.
1: <laughs> you know, But it requires a willingness to be comfortable with yourself and comfortable raising your prices and comfortable with yeah. your value.
0: For sure. What type of clients do you choose to work with as an executive coach?
1: People that are really fun.
0: <laughs> plain and simple, <laughs> fun people.
1: I really in my background in my PhD was specialized in sexual violence and trauma, and I have translated that to working with entrepreneurs who have experienced sexual violence and trauma. So it, it feels a lot like a skating at the beginning yeah. with a client, like we're a little wobbly as we yeah. get our skates under us, and then we just glide.
0: Yeah. I love it. What an analogy. I love that. What lights you up or inspires you the most about the, the work that you do?
1: My son, you know, I and I would say entrepreneurship writ large, and like he inspires me with entrepreneurship writ large. I'm really proud of his dad's law firm. I played a role at the beginning of it back when we were married. I'm really proud of my company and what I've built. And I say to my son all the time, he's seven. Who's the best boss to have? And he's like, nobody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Start him young. That's it.
1: I want him to have a sense that I'm deeply spiritual. I want him to have a sense that God gave him gifts to Mm -hmm. serve the world, yeah, not to make money, but to serve the world have impact. Yeah. And, and that it's his responsibility as I believe it's all of our responsibilities to figure out how to use our gifts to serve people.
0: Absolutely. I love that. I love that you said that it is, it's our responsibility as humans to share our gifts with the world and impart them and help people through our gifts. Cause yeah. we all have them.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. just finding
0: Absolutely. them. That's the, that's the thing, right?
1: You know, I think it becomes really easy when you get quiet, I've had a meditation practice almost every day since I was 22. And when I start my clients on it, I I have them just call it quiet time because it
0: feels
1: less high stakes. Like anybody can sit there and be quiet. (laughs) Um, But I think when you get quiet with yourself and you start to ask your intuition, what is it that I'm here to do? You know, you get answers back. Most of us ignore them because it's uncomfortable because it might mean taking action, like quitting your job.
0: So then would you say, because this thought process, this boggles my mind and it, I would love for more people because I wholeheartedly believe I have found my purpose and my mission in life and my gifts and what I'm supposed to be doing. But thinking about it on the flip side of that, the hundreds of millions of people who never do find their purpose and their mission in life. And to me, I think that's incredibly sad. So why do you think then that people don't find their mission? Do you think it's based out of fear or do you like, what do you think the the cause of that is or the reason for that is?
1: I think it's a couple of things. I think people, we have a natural aversion to thinking about what the end of our life will look like. The fastest way to find your purpose is to sit down and write a letter from your 95 year old self about the things that you regret, right? If you can project yourself into the future and think I call it the rocking chair test when you're 95 years old sitting in a rocking chair, like will you regret X or Y or Z decision that you're about to make? Hmm. You know, will you regret having stayed in a career that you hated just a little bit or a lot of it or a career that you really loved, but you never see your kids. I think that's part of it is we don't, it's just not in our nature to really project ourselves that far into the future. And then the other part of it is I don't think we slow down. We have a culture that celebrates being industrious and that's counter to going on a weekend retreat. And thinking about what it is that you're supposed to be doing in this life.
0: Yeah, it's like it's it's cool to always be hustling. That's the cool thing to do, right? And no, we need to take time to be introspective, right?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and our industries really celebrate. I'm going to bring that even larger. Capitalism thrives yeah. on people being productive, yeah. right? And the more productivity, the more money gets pumped around in the system. Yep. And it becomes part of the cultural milieu to be in the mix with that. And we're rewarded for it. I work with a lot of attorneys and I call like the competition of billable hours, which by the way, a lot of attorneys are bonused on, yeah. right? more hours you bill, the more money you make, but I call it the dick measuring contest (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. or
0: pissing contest, whatever. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I prefer to keep it on the genitals, but you know, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) whatever
0: works.
1: (laughs) I think that it's really important that we understand that these things don't rise out of nothing. They rise out of economic structures.
0: Yeah. Very true. I just, I wish for the world that more people could find their purpose and their mission in life because think of how much better off the world would be. What a place it would be. I mean, I, I understand that the world needs ditch diggers. I get it. But it's, yes, for sure. But if more people could find their purpose and their mission in life, I think things would drastically change in the world.
1: You know, and, and there are people that ditch digging feels like therapy. Yeah,
0: very true. You know?
1: I mean, there's a beautiful, finite work there right where yeah. you're like okay, hey, this ditch is done now and yeah you know like with entrepreneurship I could work 24 hours a day yeah. seven days a week and still have things that I could be doing I choose not to because my quality of life suffers and my mental health suffers when I put myself under pressure to perform in that way
0: yeah for sure. And I think that corporate life, although all these companies and corporations preach about people first and, you know, mental health is so important, they don't give a shit about that. stuff. So all they care about is the bottom line.
1: They give a shit when it impacts the bottom line, right? Yeah. And people's mental health absolutely impacts the bottom
0: line. But they, I mean, they preach about all of this stuff, but I don't think they they practice it in terms of giving their employees those breaks that they need. And it's all about productivity and what you can bring to the company and how you can benefit the company and all of that. They don't give a shit about the people for the most part.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can, certainly I have worked for companies and I can think about companies that friends have worked for where that was not the case. I struggle with mental health issues. Everyone in my family, we run towards depressive tendencies and I've had employers take tremendous care in making sure that that I'm well and the result of that is that I'm good at what I do
0: yeah yeah for sure so in your practice in your coaching practice do you work specifically and only with women and if so why do you why did you decide to focus your energy and your business on that on helping women Uh, I don't
1: I I work with men I work with trans people I um, work with non-binary people I tend to use a lot of metaphors that are gendered that I won't share on here because I don't want to offend anyone right. um, but I I tend to attract a crowd that's a little bit crass not in a rude way but that can roll with some inappropriate metaphors and things yes, like that. Um, yes yes I think the fastest way to make a company successful is to really lean into who you are authentically. There's a lot of people that would call the way that I talk unprofessional and and that's fine. Those people don't have to work with me.
0: For sure. Yeah. I think that's important. You do. You got to be authentically you this way. Your clients know exactly what they're getting and who they're getting. Yeah, You shouldn't have to change who you are.
1: You know, I post on social media every single day. Almost all of my revenue comes from people that find me on social. I don't curse a lot in just full stop. I don't curse a lot, but I like, I absolutely will. If the moment calls for it, I'm in the process of, of losing some weight right now. And someone mentioned that I'll be more attractive soon.
0: Oh Uh, my gosh.
1: (laughs) And I, for the, you can't see, um, there's no audio. It's only audio. I I'm a former model. Like I'm real good with my body. I yeah. I'm voluptuous and like definitely ring a lot of bells for people that are attracted to that. And so I wrote something about like body acceptance just in saying like for the years that I was extremely skinny, yeah, I'm 5'11, I was a size four, when I was very, very thin, I hadn't done the work of appreciating my body and yeah. you know, really embracing what my body looks like in each season. And this poor, this poor woman said that. And I just like wrote a bunch of stuff about like, it's a choice. Like you can call yourself fat or ugly, or you can say (laughs) smoking hot. And I went on a date the other night and they sure did appreciate how I look. Right. It's a mindset of, and this goes for entrepreneurship. It goes for money. What you focus on with gratitude grows in positive ways, right? started to focus on money with tremendous amount of gratitude instead of like, Oh my gosh, is there enough? You know, I made a lot more money, like significantly more money. right When I started to focus on my body with gratitude, my body, despite the fact that it was the same size, like how I felt in my skin was very different, you know, and, and in entrepreneurship, when we appreciate who we are and, and just lean into it. Right. Like I use inappropriate metaphors. I tend to work with a lot of people that used to be in the military. It works for them. (laughs) There you go. Like there's, there's people that were meant to, you know, there's, there's our tribe. And then there's people that, that don't fit in it. And there's 7 billion people in the world. And the majority of them don't give a crap about you.
0: Yep, Very true.
1: You can like step into not caring That you're not most people's cup of tea? Yeah. You know, the people who are meant to work with you will find you if you do the work of spreading your message through social, through podcasts, through, you know, I don't do paid advertising, but certainly that's an
0: option. You have the to more, put in the work though.
1: Yeah, you have to put in the work and you have to, you have to put positive energy into it too Absolutely, and believe that you're going to be successful. And if you can get your energy behind your endeavor, you can do whatever you want.
0: Absolutely. Now, you've done a lot of work as a consultant around educational equity, gender-based violence, and women's empowerment. Can you speak a bit about that work that you've done in those areas?
1: Yeah, sure. Most of the work that I've done in those areas have have been when I've been in a leadership position in nonprofits. So, I was a co-founder and the executive director of the Center for Gender and Conflict at George Mason at the Carter School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution. And then I was the director of a nonprofit in downtown Baltimore. And the work that I did around advocacy was with both of those organizations. So my organization in Baltimore was influential in the passage of a couple of different laws around educational equity. You can go look them up. It's the Downtown Baltimore Family Alliance. It's just baltimorefamilies.org. And they do really powerful work around... Educational equity and keeping families with young children in the city. My dissertation is about that work, looking at the influence that white parents play in urban school districts. And then the work that I've done on sexual violence was part of my time at the Center for the Study of Gender and Conflict. So I helped organize a number of panels, bring visiting scholars to George Mason, wrote a number of papers on it, some of which I've published, some of which I've decided not to publish, and then given testimony on bills about sexual violence in the military.
0: That's incredible work you're doing and you have done kudos to you for all of that. Now, of course, I'm going to assume here that you're a huge advocate for women's empowerment. Can you share with us what that work you do means to you on a personal level in terms of women's empowerment?
1: Yeah, I actually hate the term. All right. <laughs> it presupposes that women need to be empowered, which I think is... It's a limiting construct, right? Because if women need to be empowered by something else, that would imply that they don't have agency and are powerful on their own. So this is the sociologist in me coming out. I used to call it the empowerment pixie dust fairy, right? Where outside organizations and advocates and well-intended people would come in and say, we're going to empower women. And (laughs) And it's like, if we just had a society that looked different, women's power would never be questioned questioned, right? right? But instead we have oppressive economic structures and we have multi-level marketing that takes advantage of women. Is
0: <laughs> that MLM again?
1: <laughs> yeah, and we have systemic sexual violence, you know, a woman a woman in the US is raped every 2 minutes, you know? Like is that a women's empowerment issue or is that a male violence issue, right? That would
0: be a male violence issue.
1: That would be a male violence issue, but we don't focus on that because if we did, we would be condemning the hegemonic structures that continue to be the forces behind capitalism, right? And that's not a slam against any individual man. It's to say our economic structures and our cultural beliefs have grown out of systems that have been around for a very, very long time we're 102 years past women getting the right to vote, right? Like, yeah. you know, 100 years is a very short amount of time. It is. To, it is. You know, social forces. So I don't think women need to be empowered. I think women are powerful. And yeah. if we changed how society was structured, no one would ever question that.
0: I want to speak a little bit about women in entrepreneurship and the landscape of that and women run businesses. I mean, I come from a corporate background and I saw where women are still not treated fairly in that in the corporate world and structure in terms of not getting equal pay for doing the same job as their male counterparts. Or you look around a boardroom table in one of these big corporations, how many women are sitting in it? You can count on one hand the amount of women that are sitting at that table. So that speaks to that whole 1940s old boys club mentality, which is fucking unbelievable that it still exists in 2021. It should be eradicated. But I think that I have personally seen a shift in more women, I think, getting tired of and fed up with the bullshit in the corporate world and not getting their due, not being respected for the work they do and saying, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to jump ship and I will be the CEO of my own company. Mm -hmm. And they're just tired of it. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the landscape of women in entrepreneurship and women run businesses.
1: First off, I think that women-owned businesses are the backbone of small businesses in the U S when we think about kind of businesses that have less than five employees, I don't know if the vast majority are women, but certainly there is a significant proportion of those companies that are run by women. Right. I think that's an inspiring thing i also think it's important that we understand why that is and it's because a lot of time women feel like there's no space for them in corporate yeah. america or that the the price to pay is too high you know sheryl sandberg wrote we lean in about how women can you know, lean into their careers and corporations and become, you know, powerful executives and blah, blah, blah. I hope I'm not mixing my stories here. Somebody's going to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> so, but I, It was her or another executive, maybe it was the executive of Google, but some executive, some senior executive female had a nursery built off of her office and went back to work within the first week of giving birth. If that's the price to pay to become an executive, when we think about women in entrepreneurship, I think the most important question to ask before we get into how do we support them, how do we empower them, what uh-huh. does that look like, blah, 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 is why the fuck did they feel a need to go into business? Because if the answer is they had a deep passion and joy for what they were doing and they believed in their work and they thought that the universe needed their special sauce, that's a brilliant answer. But yeah. you know, for me, I lost a job when I was 23. And so I went into business for myself. And when the pandemic started, my law firm needed more than I could give with my child home from school. Mm -hmm. So I went into business, right? And like, that's a beautiful thing. I've certainly made more money in my own business than I did in my law firm. But that doesn't change the fact that those were outside forces that prompted me to start my own company.
0: Right. So how do you think then women can continue to push through and continue to break down these insane ways of thinking and mindset and, and beliefs around this old boys club and shift the way of thinking?
1: I mean, the cynical answer that I have. To get. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like, I'm only 38. I shouldn't be jaded yet. <laughs> so the first line of my dissertation, nope, aster's thesis is something along the lines of The pressure is put on women to transcend oppressive structures as opposed to society to transform those structures. And I think when we put the onus on women to transform societal structures and say, you're going to be empowered to do this and that and the other thing, we're ignoring the fact that society is like a rubber band. You can stretch it as much as you want and be like, look, we made progress. But eventually that's going to snap back into place. Yep. And like, I think about my mom's career. She started as an hourly worker at Fidelity Investments. Mm -hmm. She answered an ad that said others hours where she got to be off in the afternoon so that she could get her kids off the bus. She was a recent divorcee and she worked her way up in the company and 25 years later, retired as a vice president. You had to have 15 million invested with Fidelity to get a meeting with her. And shit. Yeah, I mean she she had a magnificent career. Powerhouse. Powerhouse. My my mom's my hero. And like I think about the transformation that she you know the way that she transcended in organizational structures and I know she's been a part of different committees where they've looked at women investing and how do they retain women in leadership at Fidelity? But I walk away from all of it saying like these interventions have not translated to societal change writ large. And so as much as I think that it's possible to put cracks in the ceiling, I don't envision a future in which the ceil- like the glass ceiling is broke. I just, I don't, yeah. I don't think okay. it's possible. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. You're entitled to what you think and what you believe. And I mean, I don't think there's any change coming anytime soon. I was talking about this with someone the other day, and we're talking about how there's no way of changing the minds of the corporate structure in terms of the way it is right now because of the old white men of the boys club are at those positions. And until they leave and vacate that and those positions, it's not going to change the way that the change starts, I think is the newer younger generation coming in with the different mindset and way of thinking, implementing some of those changes, right?
1: How many generations have been saying that now?
0: I know, I know, maybe (laughs) fingers crossed, hoping, I guess, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's not that I believe it's impossible. It's I believe it's impossible with the current economic structures that we have in place. Yeah, I believe it's impossible with the current way that we socialize girls and boys. So let's go back to sexual violence for a second. When we think about the way little boys and little girls behave in like preschool and kindergarten settings, boys are more likely to act out and girls yeah. are more likely to be calm and quiet. And girls get praised for that behavior. And they learn if they're quiet and calm, they get validated, right? right? And behavior is very simple. We will continue to do what gives us a dopamine hit. Yeah. And so those little girls are quiet and calm and they continue to get celebrated. And so they're quiet and calm and little yeah. boys, Little boys act out and they get told that boys will be boys and sometimes they get medicated for it, but there's permission on some sort of level. And so we scale that up and we have people like Brock Turner, you know, at Stanford University raping a girl behind a dumpster and getting off for it because boys will be boys.
0: Which is ridiculous that there's a lot of change that needs to happen a lot for sure. 100%. 100%. And I don't know, it, it's a long road. And we've been traveling this long road for a long time. So where do we start? How does how did the change start?
1: I think it starts with socializing little girls to be daring. Yeah, because if little girls were not celebrated for being quiet, for being respectful, for being whatever, and we were to socialize them. and And I'm not saying there aren't biological differences, because of course, there are but if we were to socialize little girls in ways that we celebrated risk-taking and we celebrated adventure and we built into our curriculum opportunities for girls to explore the outdoors more and to explore you know, math more and to be celebrated for risk-taking, yeah. I think we would start to see cultural changes where women felt powerful, right? Not felt empowered by someone else coming and saying, well, well, now you have economic tools to do microfinancing in the third yeah. world. Now you're empowered. It's like fuck that. It's it yeah, for behavior. sure. We can't change society unless we change how people are rewarded for thinking.
0: Definitely. I agree. I agree. It's a long road. Any way you look at it, it's a long, hard road that needs to be walked and change needs to start. You gotta start somewhere.
1: I think laws, laws around the economy are a good place to start, right? Because yeah. like Changing curriculum is very, labor, you know, like good fucking luck, yeah. right? I don't think it's impossible, but if we were to have gender parity around maternity leave and paternity leave, and men yep. were just as encouraged to stay home as women, yep. you know, and we had sanctions in place for employers to pay the same amount of money to women as men, if we had open publication, please Jesus, this would be so simple open publication of salaries Yeah. that, you know, where it didn't say Elizabeth made 30,000 and Brad made 50, yeah. but simply said, you know, we had to report to the government, here's the gender and here was the wage. Here's the gender and here was the wage. Yeah. Like that would be a great start.
0: For sure. Lots of work to be done. That's for sure. 100%. Liz, what drives, motivates, and inspires you to keep going and keep pushing and excelling at all that you do?
1: My kid. Easily my kid. Yeah. You know, I just like said a bunch of pessimistic shit.
0: (laughs) Now let's get into optimism.
1: (laughs) I am captivated by the possibility of social change. And I think like for me, it starts with one, you know, Buddha said one candle lighting a thousand does not diminish the light of that first. I'm paraphrasing. I believe that I have an important message that God has spoken onto my heart and that for a long time, the way I thought that I was meant to impact people was on a sociocultural and legal level. And maybe there'll be a season in my life where that feels true again. But the way that I find great joy now is helping other people resolve internal conflicts, especially conflicts that have arisen because someone else came and took their power. Yeah, um, Helping people find peace with themselves and tap into their own potential gives me so much pleasure.
0: That's a beautiful gift. You know, it's a lot of
1: fun. I, I had the privilege of working with someone who was inpatient in a mental hospital receiving care for depression. And I'm an EFT practitioner, which stands for emotional freedom technique. Yep. It's tapping, tapping for, yep. yep, for tapping. And I got to tap with her. She was supposed to be there for a full month. She was discharged the next day.
0: Holy and shit.
1: It wasn't because I gave, you know, it, medicine was certainly part of her treatment, right? Yeah. I don't want to play that. But when we give ourselves permission to see ourselves as whole and worthy, and we use tools to help our nervous system calm down, there's not much that we can't do.
0: Liz, what do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful?
1: Sounds cocky, but I'm like, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have a deep understanding of human behavior, some of which is probably innate some of which is probably a trauma response to growing up in situations where it was important for me to be able to read the room or else I you know harm would come to me not not from my parents i have wonderful parents i've combined that with very powerful tools that have come into vogue in therapy like tapping like rapid transformational therapy which is a form of hypnosis and combined that with basics conflict resolution. My PhD is in conflict resolution. Yeah. And I draw from a lot of frameworks that are used in international conflict mitigation. Um, and I've kind of mushed them together with psychotherapy techniques and created a number of different tools that help people move past trauma.
0: You are a unicorn. <laughs> like
1: that. More of an there's like high (laughs) octopus like my hands are in many 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 cookie
0: jars (laughs) so speaking of success Liz how do you define the word success what does that word mean to you
1: campsite rule leaving the planet better than when I found it love that what would you
0: say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life and what was your life like before learning it and what was your life like after learning it
1: I had a very serious bout of depression okay And for those that have not experienced clinical depression, it's not the opposite of happy. It's the opposite of being alive where you just want to fall asleep and not wake up and walking through that, you know, really wrestling with very dark demons, like my son would be better off without me, you know, thoughts like that, the process of receiving treatment for that and the process of meeting other people who have walked that same path has been, I don't want to say the most transformative part of my life is certainly recovering from my own sexual assault was very transformative. Learning how to be an entrepreneur was transformative. Becoming a mother was transformative, but wrestling with the existential question of, do I still want to be alive? Was, you know, I mean, it was a crucible, right? Walking yeah. through that when your brain wants to kill itself. <laughs> Yeah, You know, like the biological driving force in all human life is that we want to stay alive. Yeah. You know, we'll do anything. We'll take any drive.
0: Survival drugs. mode, right? That's
1: Yeah, survival yeah. mode. Yeah. And when your brain kind of short circuits and says no, we want to do the opposite of that now. Yeah, it's a very scary thing to go through. And the thing that I learned from walking through that was was to prioritize joy. Was if it makes me happy and it doesn't do harm and it aligns with my highest purpose, I will do that thing.
0: <laughs> you do know, more of I, that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, do more of that. You know, and and I think that that could you know, sound like it gives rise to recklessness. I'm an addict in recovery, you know, maybe doing a line of coke would give me joy in the moment, you know, maybe having a bunch of casual sex would give me joy in the moment. (laughs) You know, so I, I always say like, that's in alignment with your highest good. If you're doing shit that makes you unhappy, just stop.
0: Yeah for sure. Life's too short to do shit that doesn't make you happy.
1: Yeah, or you know, the flip side of that if you're if you're suicidally depressed, life feels tremendously long. Yeah. I mean, tremendously long, and you're just kind of like taking it 20 minutes at a time being like, I don't know, how do I get through the next 20 minutes? Like, I remember going and seeing a movie during this time period, and, you know, it was like a two-hour movie or something, mm-hmm. um, and I had made a firm decision that I was not going to kill myself, which was a decision I had to make. It, I yeah. was on the fence for a long time. But after I'd made that decision, but had not yet come out of the depressive episode, it really was just kind of like, how do I fill these 10 minutes? Because life feels horribly long. And I remember going to that movie and, you know, between transportation time and the movie and buying the popcorn and whatnot, it filled three hours. And I was like, okay, I could get through life by, by watching this. Movie. I could fill, you know, how many periods of, you know, there's eight three hour periods in 24 yep. hours. And I could watch eight movies and like, get <laughs> life by that, you know, and yeah. so I don't know what I've learned from that beyond, you know, really be careful about making sure that you're doing things that make you happy.
0: Absolutely. I'm going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be two, three forward answer type thing. Okay.
1: Okay. Ready to go.
0: What was your dream job as a child?
1: My best friend tells this story. We've been friends since we were eight. She tells the story of apparently like the first time we met May you know, maybe it was a couple of times after, but she tells it as like the first time we met, I told her I was going to be the president of the United States. <laughs> when I first seriously considered running for office, this was, my son was like three. There was an opportunity that came up in my district and I was still running the nonprofit in Baltimore and and I seriously considered whether or not it was the time to run. And I called her and I was like, I'm thinking about running for office. And she like started screaming with excitement and she was like, I've been waiting for this day since we (laughs) were eight. And I I don't see my life taking that direction anymore. But um that was my that was my dream.
0: Okay. What would your family and friends list as a couple of your best characteristics?
1: I don't know if they would list this as the best, but like the most defining is that I'm very willful, which can be a a benefit and a curse. Um, (laughs) I'm very, very, very creative. And I'm just kind of balls to the wall. Like I don't do anything halfway.
0: Love it. How would you describe yourself in one word? Driven. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be?
1: To recognize that everything is driven by economic forces and to see human behavior through the lens of what is this person afraid of happening financially if they don't take this step?
0: What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money?
1: Hmm. For my son to respect me and think that I did best by him.
0: If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change?
1: I would decriminalize all drugs.
0: Entrepreneur life is? Stressful. If you were writing your autobiography, what would the title be?
1: My first answer: I started writing an autobiography when I was fifteen, and I I was a very chubby kid, and um, everyone would say, "But you have such a pretty face." And so, oh my God! So the title of that book was, "But you have such a pretty face," and you know, I, yeah. I think I'll with that.
0: What is one of your favorite entrepreneurial books?
1: Profit First by Mike Michalowitz.
0: That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What's one thing you wish you had known when you started out your entrepreneurial journey?
1: To hire a bookkeeper.
0: What would you say are the top three skills needed to be a successful entrepreneur?
1: Humility to draw in people smarter than you, diligence to pay attention to finances, belief in your skill set and what it yeah. is that you founded the company to do.
0: What is the most entrepreneurial thing about you?
1: (laughs) I'm just like, I have an imagination that turns people's skill sets into companies and it's hard to turn it off. I was at a Christmas Eve dinner two years ago and the waitress was explaining a particular idea she had for a tea cart when she was moving to Egypt in a couple of years And she sat down at our table this Christmas Eve dinner. And I got out a notebook and I started outlining like this and this and this and this. And she reached out to me on Instagram two Mm. years later. And she said, I will never forget that experience. I'm saving up money so I can hire you.
0: (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Liz, what does the best version of you look like when you close your eyes and imagine it?
1: Peaceful stable emotionally, prioritizing my son, living on a boat again.
0: You want to go back to the boat, do you?
1: Yeah, I sold I sold it a couple of months ago and it was among the dumber choices I've ever made.
0: <laughs> so you regret selling the boat?
1: Deeply, deeply. I, I listened to a couple of friends versus mm-hmm. a couple of other friends. And yeah. at that moment, it had felt very overwhelming because it a 40 foot 33 year old yacht. It's a lot of upkeep and uh, it didn't feel aligned at the time. And now I'm very much regretting that choice. Well,
0: I'm sure you'll get another boat and be back out on the water at some point.
1: No doubt. Yeah.
0: If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why?
1: Oprah. Because I think she's blended my version of spirituality, which involves a lot of metaphysics. She's blended that with mass consumerism is the wrong way to general market, right? Like there's a lot of people, I call it the woo-woo BS. Like, There's a lot of people into law of attraction and manifestation and metaphysics and kind of the universe taking care of you that are a little out to lunch for my taste and it's not to say that they're wrong i've been known to carry crystal in my bra happens (laughs) oprah seems to have translated it in a way that a lot of people can benefit from it instead of just like a very small niche of people who are like you know i i have a super
0: woo woo and yeah like i'm a
1: reiki healer i'm i'm so down with it but you know i really like my brought it
0: to the masses.
1: Yeah, like my message is fundamentally the universe is calling you to do something and if you shed the trauma and the codependency and the people pleasing, you can go do it. Yeah. And and like that's a broader message than you know, I think a lot of spiritual entrepreneurs carry.
0: What would you say is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for?
1: I want to say money trauma. I grew up with a lot of instability around money and I carried that into my adulthood. And it's taught me a lot about, valuing myself. I've made large quantities of money and lost large quantities of money. And I've had to come to a place where I forgive myself for some of that. And that forgiveness was a precursor to learning how to manage money effectively. And I think there's a lot of different ways to learn self-forgiveness, but that was the path for me.
0: What is one of your favorite quotes?
1: Mm, I don't remember who said this. I'm going to have to Google. But it, something along the lines of like, stick with the crazy ones. They're the ones that can change the world.
0: Steve Jobs. Okay. Said some, uh, I can't remember exactly how the quote goes. The reason I remember is because someone quoted that to me very recently. And it, I remember it was Steve Jobs that said it. It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world that will. Something along Thank those lines. You. Yep, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I I think that I think it takes a sort of systems are designed to to protect systems, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. once an object in motion will stay in motion, right? Systems, yeah. social systems are the same place, same way, and you have to be a little bit nuts to think that you can change stuff.
0: Absolutely, because well, you think about that. Let's even just use voting as an example. People say, you know. Oh, what difference am I going to make? If, if my one vote, how, how is that going to change anything? How is my vote? If I'm just one person, how can I change anything? Right? I'm just one person. But when you think about the fact that if you that one person starts something, that's the initiative for starting change, that's starting to move the needle starting to that one spoke in that wheel for change, right? You can't think of it as, oh, I'm just one person. I can't make a difference. Yes, you can, because you start that process. You start the ball rolling on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Liz, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Fall in love with your body as is.
0: That is very powerful. And so many people need that message. So many people, because it all starts with us. It all starts with the foundation of self. Yep. Lastly, Liz, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What would you say?
1: The only person whose opinion matters is yours, how your body is right now is just as valid as the next supermodel. The things that you want to buy with money are totally valid, but you can be happy without them. And once you find that happiness, the money comes easily. Do what it is that you feel called to do in your gut and fuck the haters.
0: (laughs) Very eloquent. I love it. (laughs) Great ending. Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and sharing about your story and your journey, your experiences. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I am so grateful for you. I'm grateful that you took the time to sit down with me and share in this journey of yours. And I appreciate you. And I'm happy to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. You are a truly inspiring woman. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Dr. Liz Dubois. She is a soul centered executive coach. Thanks, Liz. Have an amazing rest of the day. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at vizuforia.ca. Follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.